0: Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks, a podcast where I share my bi-weekly progress as an aspiring professional dulcimer player by performing some of your favorite hits as well as newly composed tunes. Mm-hmm.
1: every two weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school join us mark and tom as we examine old hits forgotten favorites and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward angst filled teenage years one album at a time
0: Doing well. It has been quite the fortnight. How are you? I am also doing fairly well. We're just two unemployed guys recording a podcast, right? Correct. I feel like that's the state for a lot of podcasts. I feel like we're living up to all of our high school teachers' greatest ambitions for us. So are you saying Candace would be proud or unsurprised? Unsurprised. Okay, that tracks. I'm not sure there's anything we could do to have ever made Candace proud. So, have you been up to anything fun? You know, it was Halloween. Did the little Halloween thing. Did some stuff for All Souls and All Saints Days. Nice. It's been fun. We did go this weekend to a big Day of the Dead festival where artists make the ofretos, Okay. And uh, it was pretty rad. How about you? What have you been
1: up to? Before we get to me, I'm curious, have you finished Neverwhere yet?
0: I did finish Neverwhere, and I really want more. Yeah, it's a really fun world, isn't it? It is really fun. It's creative. It's a unique fantasy world that we don't see all the time.
1: He does a lot of interesting things with the characters, and it's
0: pretty compelling. It is. Neil Gaiman is a wonderful, wonderful writer. Knowing that he's
1: British, I'm still going to say he's a national treasure, because he lives in the States now. (laughs) But me... I know you talked about it a lot, and a couple of other people had also mentioned that the last season of The Simpsons was better than it had been in a long time. Did you watch it? So i finally gotten around to it, yeah. What'd you think? And I agree. There's a handful of episodes where I was skeptical going into them because it seemed like they were trying to retcon prior ideas. Yeah, but I still think that even those episodes I end up being fairly pleased with. Yeah. I especially enjoyed the ending of the one where Skinner's trying to make Springfield Elementary a magnet school for musical theater. Yep. <laughs> because at the end he mentions that he's trying to just create a generation of Josh Gads, and Bart responds that there is no Josh Gad. <laughs> which is a fun joke because I don't think many people recognize Josh Gad by name.
0: I don't either until you say, Oh, that's Olaf. <laughs>
1: Well, for the world, I'm stuck in most of the time. And he's certainly done more and he's gotten out there more. But have I ever told you my Josh Gad story?
0: No, what's your Josh Gad story?
1: When I was living in Salt Lake, years ago, Charles used to do a weekly kind of songwriter showcase at Copper Common, which is one of the bars downtown. And during the summer months, he'd set up on the patio and copper commons in the middle of a block but it's on the corner of an alleyway that connects to the next street up which also has a lot of bars on that end of the alleyway okay and so some summer night i'm hanging out on the patio chuck setting up and coming down the alleyway is josh gad and some random dude and they're talking okay as they get close to me they stop in front of me and josh gad looks at the guy he's like hold on a second and he looks at me and he's like do you know who i am and i'm like yeah of course and he kind of looks at the guy and it's kind of like see people know me <laughs> and so i'm like well i mean i don't know your name but i've seen you and stuff you're the guy that's in that movie with jake gillenhall and Anne hathaway's boobs <laughs> He kind of laughed it off. He's like, yeah, that's fair. I would expect him to find that funny. But then I was like, I really don't know your name. I just know you as the poor man's Jonah Hill. Oh, you didn't, Mark. And at that point, he kind of gives a little like Sander's breath and rolls his eyes. And he's like, yeah, OK, haha, Very funny. I'm like, really? You think I'm funny? and he's like yeah okay whatever i'm like that's very nice of you because isn't that supposed to be your job and at this point he starts to walk off he's like okay wise guy okay yeah whatever as he's walking away i'm yelling down the street after him hey can you put me in touch with your agent mark that's awful because
0: josh gad's so funny he seems like a really good guy
1: and i don't necessarily have anything against josh gad you're right it was mean of me but at the same time anyone who thinks they're famous walking up to me on the street to try to prove to somebody else that they're famous i'm gonna clown you
0: yeah that is kind of a crap thing to
1: do too i guess I did kind of feel bad about that. I mean, I was maybe a little harder than I should have been, but it was still also really funny. But in my defense, you know, aside from enjoying last season of The Simpsons, the main reason I'm bringing this up is because as much of a crappy thing to do to another human as that was, it doesn't even register on the scale of how terrible of a human being that Stephen Jenkins is. ha <laughs> ha! Now, for those of you who don't know, Stephen Jenkins is the frontman of the band Third Eye Blind, and tonight we are going to be discussing Third Eye Blind, their self-titled album, and Stephen Jenkins' Ego.
0: Yeah, we came into this episode fully prepared to talk about Third Eye Blind.
1: In in our research, though, I think we can't necessarily stick solely to discussing the album.
0: You made a joke at the onset of prepping this episode. Mm -hmm. Hey, has Stephen Jenkins always been a total jerk or did this develop later? And I was like, oh, ha ha, I'll see what I can find out.
1: Now, I'm going to apologize up front. In this episode, we will most likely use stronger language than usual. And we are going to make some nasty and disparaging remarks because there are some things that we will be addressing that we are unable to discuss in any other way to do the subject justice. And that subject being that Stephen Jenkins is a giant douchebag. I think the introduction for both of us to just how bad Stephen Jenkins is as a person came as a result to both of us being massive Jimmy World
0: fans. A hundred percent. Jimmy World toured with Third Eye Blind in 2019, Mm -hmm. and we'll get more into this, but I really like following Zach Lend on Twitter, and in all the time that I have followed Zach Lend, I have never seen him post anything disparaging about anybody until their tour, and his opinions of Stephen Jenkins were enough to cause me pause and look into what this guy's been up to, but we'll come back to this in a little bit. Okay, so to get it out of the way, we're covering Third Eye Blind at the time of their self-titled debut release which was back in 97 the band members at the time were steven jenkins who was on lead vocals he did some guitar percussions and keyboard arrangements mm-hmm. kevin cadigan was on lead guitar backing vocals and played the auto harp Arion salazar did bass back vocals and piano and brad hargreaves was our drummer okay to dive into how the band formed we've got to really understand the person at the center of the band who is Stephen jenkins Stephen grew up in Palo Alto, California, where he was a child of divorce at age seven. He apparently had dyslexia growing up, which affected his performance at school. But to answer Mark's question, Stephen Jenkins was so awful at an early age that in sixth grade, his teacher told him that not only would he not graduate from high school, but that he was headed straight for juvenile hall. (laughs) And he wrote in his high school yearbook as his quote, success. All it takes is all you've got.
1: (sighs) After high school, he did, in fact, go to college and he studied English literature at UC Berkeley Mm -hmm. and he made sure to make a trip back to visit that teacher that encouraged him so many years before to kind of rub their face in the fact that he did, in fact, graduate high school and went on to further education because that's the kind of classy guy he is.
0: I will never forget in second grade I lived with my grandparents and I was in class and we had to do our our spelling words writing you know writing sentences with our spelling words and my word was wretched and I wrote Mrs Logan is a wretched wretched woman <laughs> <laughs> and she called my grandparents in, she talked to them for a while. And then I came in and we had a conference and she told me that she was really hard on me because I didn't apply myself and that I was really smart. And she's like, and I know your grandparents and I know where they are. And if you don't do well in school, you're not going to be able to afford to go to college. They can't pay for you to go. If you don't apply yourself, you're not going to make anything of yourself. That stuck with me. And as a result, I did work hard and I did get college paid for with scholarships, but instead of going back to tell her, you said, if I didn't apply myself, I wouldn't be anything. Well, look at me. I am something. I've always been grateful for her as Steven Jenkins should have been. Anyway, in 1990, Jenkins was living in San Francisco, living on Lower Hate Street and was part of a rap duo called Puck and Natty. And they had a song called Just Want to Be Your Friend. Did you listen to it?
1: No, I thought about it, but I was like, I'm sure it's terrible, so I haven't even bothered. And that's one
0: more listen for Stephen Jenkins' music that I just didn't want to do. (laughs) That song did make it onto Beverly Hills 90210. So there's a quote that Stephen
1: Jenkins made talking about that whole short lived rap career and selling that song to the TV show. He says that they made just under eight grand from that song, which he claims he used to buy groceries. So either he bought a hell of a lot of groceries or he's an idiot.
0: And since you have never heard of Puck and Natty, you probably know that the band was not successful. What? They broke up shortly after this and were unable to secure a record deal, mainly because Steven Jenkins is an egotistical control freak. Yeah, they were actually approached by
1: some people interested, but nobody wanted to give him full control or creative license. And so he kind of tanked the whole thing.
0: They did write a song together that we'll visit later.
1: The other thing to come out of that time with the rap duo was that Stephen did make industry connections. Mm -hmm. It opened a lot of doors to people at labels and got him contacts that he was able to use once he then put his next band together. That band being Third Eye Blind.
0: Which was a name that he himself had held on to for a while that he wanted to use. Yep. The early days of the band weren't smooth. Member turnover was high. And if you believe how Jenkins tells it, the turnover was because everyone he tried to play music with was literally high all the time. He claims he would recruit new members only to have them almost immediately leave the band because of drug addiction or join another band.
1: And the fact that he doesn't know the difference between the two is probably a solid indicator that most of them left because Stephen Jenkins is an insufferable human being.
0: Well, at least once you start to spend time with him. (laughs)
1: A guitarist by the name of Kevin Cadigan was at one of those early shows. Kevin is a Bay Area native. He was born in Oakland, raised in Berkeley, somewhere between those two. His family spent two years living in England, but he started playing guitar at age 12 and studied under Joe Satriani, which if you're going to have a guitar teacher, that's a pretty solid one to have. Absolutely. So Kevin saw Third Eye Blind in their early days. And after the show, he went up to Stevens to say that he liked the set. He introduced himself. To which Stephen, in the only normal, decent, and human act he's ever committed, admitted he had come across a copy of a demo that Kevin had put out and had enjoyed Kevin's guitar playing.
0: Now, I do want to make note here that today, Kevin is not a fan of Steven and mm-hmm. is part of a band called XEB, which is a group of ex-Third Eye Blind musicians. At the time, Steven and Kevin started up an acoustic duo and they were playing around at Bay Area bars.
1: Well, I don't think they necessarily started a duo. I think that they just hit it off and worked very well together. And the duo of those two became the driving force of Third Eye Blind.
0: Yeah. They wrote a bunch of songs and demos and they had a hard time getting a drummer to stick so they were rotating in drummers
1: they had such a hard time with keeping drummers they had one drummer that left right before the band was to play a battle of the bands which i know you love battle of the band stories
0: they won right
1: no (laughs) no They spectacularly lost, in addition to their drummer quitting the band before the show. Steven gave a terrible performance, which he blamed on being sick and unable to perform well. And second song into their set, Kevin blew his amp. And the whole thing was a big enough train wreck that they didn't just lose the competition, they also lost their management. Their manager (laughs) left them as a result of that battle of the bands.
0: Now, we've covered Battle of the Bands, where bands win and where bands lose, but this is the first time the manager quit. After the show, they found the drummer, Brad Hargreaves, and he's been the drummer ever since. Okay. They did another demo, and this time they got the attention of Clive Davis in 1995, who invited them to come out to New York City and perform a show for Arista Records.
1: Thanks to Steven's inflated sense of self-importance. That show led to some theatrics that didn't go over so well. <laughs> At the time, the band had been known for having a piñata hanging over the audience, which Stephen would break, and then usually candy would rain down on the crowd. Oh, that's fun. But for some reason, in order to endear himself to record execs, Stephen changed the idea slightly. So when he broke open the piñata, instead of candy, down rained a whole bunch of crickets. He claims that he was feeling biblical and for some reason thought that recreating the plague of locusts would be a smart move, but he couldn't find locusts, so he settled for crickets, which then crickets got everywhere in the venue and they pretty much had to shut down for the day
0: it's all good record labels love biblical plagues being brought in so that went over really well Mm -hmm. it did not ruin their career though in april of 1996 they secured an opening gig for oasis at the fillmore they also had an opening gig for the counting crows at the fillmore but this oasis show they were so great that the opener third eye blind was called out for an encore supposedly during all of this cadogan threw a can of coke at liam gallagher (laughs) <laughs> I can only imagine the Gallagher brothers and Stephen Jenkins really hitting it off.
1: Oh, definitely. No conflicts and personalities there. None at all. I do have to question, though, how much of that call for an encore was an actual audience demand and how much was Steven's ego interpreting a normal level of applause <laughs> or rather misinterpreting
0: so they're getting some great shows. They're getting some notoriety. People in the Bay Area know who they are. Steven really got a lot of attention. He produced the Braids version of Bohemian Rhapsody and got a lot of eyes on him, which is exactly what somebody with an overinflated sense of self-importance needs. See, I don't think that's fair to say, to say that he got a lot of attention from it because I had
1: never heard of this before.
0: I hadn't either, but apparently some of the articles I read said that was part of what set them up for the bidding war that they would get for their first album. Uh Okay. Which, like the Counting Crows, everybody wanted to produce their first album. They finally signed with Sylvia Rohn at Electra Records in June of 96. And the ultimate deciding factor wasn't money or anything. It was that Electra Records gave Stephen Jenkins complete artistic freedom.
1: Right. It wasn't the money, nope. it was padding his ego. Now, speaking of his ego and signing their record contract, between the time that the band was offered the deal and they accepted and signed the final paperwork, Stephen Jenkins, unbeknownst to everyone else in the band, he set up the corporation Third Eye Blind Inc., which listed only him as the sole owner and shareholder. Then, the night before the band went in and physically signed the contract, again without their knowing, steven had the contract rewritten so that all payments for the band would be made out to third eye blind inc and once those shady moves were made steven still didn't tell anyone in the band about it so no one knew he was screwing them over until late 1999
0: so we have three years of these band members putting in work touring making records and they don't know that they own absolutely none of it right
1: Cadigan was under the impression the whole time that he was an equal member with Steven since they wrote the majority of the songs together. He thought they were actually partners,
0: but they weren't. Before we jump into what happens with the band, let's take a little sidetrack. Yeah, this is a nice moment to pivot. Yeah, so you're good with taking a few minutes to take a comprehensive look at just how awful Steven Jenkins has been? Yes, let's. So the tweet that we mentioned early on when we talked about Zach Lind, the longtime drummer of Jimmy World on Twitter, Mm -hmm. he just tweeted and said, Stephen Jenkins is such an effing creepy douchebag. I feel so much better now. It's funny
1: because he doesn't share much in the way of details beyond making that statement. One thing that he did share, though, was that while on tour... It's a common practice for bands to have tour laminates that say that they're in the band and they're allowed to be backstage and in places that are not accessible by fans. However, Third Eye Blind had posted in all the venues these little flyers that they had made up that said that Third Eye Blind will not be wearing laminates. And it's on the venue crew to learn the faces of the band members and anyone else who isn't in the band not wearing a laminate is not allowed to be back there, which is definitely a prima donna move.
0: I want to read one of his other two tweets. He said, I genuinely feel bad for anyone stepping in to defend this dude when they have no idea what they're defending. My assessment of the man here is extravagantly generous. (laughs) And then he said, and for those saying I should have said my piece in person, A, you don't know I didn't. And B, you're coming to the defense of someone who literally redrafted his band's recording contract for his own benefit on the eve of signing and didn't tell his bandmates until years later.
1: Yeah. Whew. For various reasons and interactions between the two bands, Green Day are not fans, which is surprising because, you know, we kind of covered on the AFI one how most Bay Area bands are close to each other and support each other. Yeah. But not Green Day.
0: Smash Mouth also had beef with Stephen Jenkins. Their late frontman Steve Harwell said, there are a few bands that we just don't like touring with. Your Third Eye Blinds of the world. I wouldn't go near Steven Jenkins in that band. The guy's a douchebag, you know? You can put that on camera because I really don't care, but he is. He's not a good person. That's all I'll say about that.
1: And it may be a result of the story that a fan tells about seeing the two play together. Apparently, Steven had very specific assigned spots that everyone in the band was supposed to set up, and the rest of the stage was designated Steven-only territory, and this person, in telling the story, says that Third Eye Blind invited the guy from Smash Mouth out to do a song with them, and Steven told him where to stand. (laughs) So they're in the middle of doing the song, and Steven kind of gives vocal duties over to... Steve Harwell, who then steps outside of his zone, which Steven immediately starts yelling at him that this is my spot. Jeez, dude.
0: Yeah so rob thomas the front man for matchbox 20 had a period in his career when he gained about 40 pounds on their first major tour and apparently steve jenkins talked trash about rob thomas and in an interview rob thomas said he made fun of me called me a fat guy screw you he has no soul whatsoever he and his band got into a fight once because he wanted to put just his picture on their t-shirt i just think you are walking breathing living cheese
1: ooh sick burn rob thomas so about 10 years later, after the walking cheese burn, Rob Thomas gave a follow up statement that says, I don't hate him. I just don't like him. He has no soul. He's really just a cock.
0: Going back to what you've reiterated several times, and that's that Bay Area bands are usually cool with each other. Mm-hmm. San Francisco singer, songwriter and producer John Vanderslice said Stephen Jenkins has caused a lot of misery in his lifetime. He's a net negative as a person.
1: It's funny on that John Vanderslice because he gave a whole interview to The Onion's AV Club where he recounts the story about Third Eye Blind came into his studio to meet with him to see if the studio and if he was a good fit to work with on a future recording and the band was on time and they were gracious and everyone was talking and having a lovely conversation and Stephen jenkins was nowhere to be found he finally shows up like half an hour late comes in in his full motorcycle leather get up with his helmet on and walks in doesn't apologize for being late doesn't make excuses doesn't even give basic hello pleasantries and i'm going to read this from the interview because it's best in his own words so he comes in and he takes a chair I will never forget this. This was one of those golden moments of tiny telephone recording. He takes a folding chair and flips it around backwards and then puts it uncomfortably close to me, considering that we're in a large room. And sits face to face with me, sitting backwards in a chair and says, okay, what are we going to do about this rate? We've got to get this rate down. And the interviewer at this point interrupts and is like, I didn't realize people actually do that in real life. Is Stephen Jenkins A.C. Slater? <laughs> they then kind of talk about haggling the rate of if they're going to record with John Van or not in the studio. And at a point, he says that Stephen just picked up his motorcycle helmet and started pacing the room. And everyone's just kind of looking around, wondering what's going on. And finally, he just stops and says, OK, let's do this. And then he leaves. And that was it. <laughs> Did they record together? The interview doesn't say. Oh, I'm sorry. That wasn't AV Club. That was for Up Rocks, Rocks with two X's.
0: Ooh, so it's Good Rocks. Yeah, Mark, don't be surprised by the rocks that I got. You know, I'm still I'm still Jenny from the Block. Okay. I'll show myself out for singing Jennifer Lopez to you. Yeah. Another indication of the kind of person he is, Max Collins, the frontman for Eve 6, said in an interview, not even using Stephen Jenkins' name, which seems pretty epic. He says, after the 3rd Eye blind guy told me he effed my girlfriend, he told me I was a wordsmith like Jim Morrison. So did he say I screwed your girlfriend and then gave him a compliment,
1: or did he mean that as an insult? I would assume a wordsmith like Jim Morrison would be a compliment, right? I would assume so, but I also assume that Stephen Jenkins is an idiot who maybe was trying to insult him and didn't realize that it was a compliment.
0: I don't know. Seems really weird, though, to compliment somebody or insult somebody right after telling them that little bit of information.
1: Yeah. However, it's not just other musicians who have grown to despise Jenkins. Because of his lack of a human personality, he has turned a lot of fans against him for a wide assortment of reasons, so much so that there is a whole thread on the Third Eye Blind subreddit entitled, A Compilation of Jenkins' Douchebaggery Behavior.
0: (laughs) And these are his fans?
1: Yes. The stories pretty much all start with, I loved Third Eye Blind. I was excited to see them. Man, there's all kinds of stories on there. There's some that are just simply, I met Stephen Jenkins one time and I tried asking him questions and he ignored a couple of questions. And so just to see if he was paying any attention, I was just like, so what do you think of this weather? At which point that actually got his attention. He turns to the fan and says, really, that's the best that you have to ask me. Oh, yeah, there's another story that somebody posted about how they went to Austin City Limits Festival to see Third Eye Blind, and they got into a meet and greet. And during their meeting with Stephen, he asked them if they were going to be at their show the following week. To which they told him, "No, we drove down from Dallas for this. We don't live in Austin. We just came for the show." To which Stephen replied, "Oh, so you're not true fans?
0: See, I mean, I would be grateful if somebody drove two two and a half hours to come meet me, right?
1: Yeah." But on a less just kind of eye roll and a much more questionable and cringy note, there are stories in here of people who have talked about how I was a big fan. When I was 15, I was at a show with my dad and we were up against the stage and one of the bouncers came and gave me a VIP pass. And when I went to go backstage, my dad tried coming with me, but since he wasn't given a pass, the bouncer wouldn't let him in and then tried to get physical and almost violent with somebody just trying to be a protect father not wanting to let their underage daughter backstage alone with a rock band and so they ended up kicking the father out at which point the girl had the good sense to stick with her dad good smart daughter and she claims that at this point steven was well into his 40s
0: i got the impression from zach lynn's tweets that that had something to do with why he called him a creep
1: yeah, I'm sure there's a handful of reasons for it, but this definitely suggests that he's just a creepy old dude. Because yep. there's a handful of other stories where it is similar, where there are people like me and my girlfriend were at the show and we were given backstage passes and we went back and immediately picked up on a really weird vibe that neither of us liked and we bailed. Yep. There is also a video on YouTube of Stephen ranting about how he wants to spank Britney Spears. Gross. But there is also the whole Vanessa Carlton thing. Are you going to tell us? Steven Jenkins got into a relationship and was dating Vanessa Carlton for a few years. And while in that relationship, he co-wrote four songs while producing Vanessa Carlton's second album. He also co-wrote five songs and produced her third album. And I know that normally in a relationship, it's good to be supportive of your partner and to have shared interests. But I really, with the rest of this context, I see it more as a very overbearing control move. Yep. Especially since at the time of making her second album, when she was 23, he was already 40.
0: Yep. She picked Steven to be her producer. And she says in an interview with Berkeley Online that she didn't realize he wasn't a producer. And he started doing all sorts of weird control stuff. There was, it was MTV that censored her, right? I don't know. I think MTV censored her, one of her songs, and Steven got mad. And he basically screwed up her career by burning bridges, but he also screwed his own band. Yeah. Cadigan refused to sign on any more record contracts or loans until shares were issued to him. And in January 2000, Cadogan left Third Eye Blind and Salazar went with him. And they formed XEB. At the 20th anniversary of this album back in 2017, XEB does a little tour. And Cadogan is being interviewed by The Ringer. And he says, I suppose it's a bit of a bittersweet thing. It's different because we're not necessarily doing a victory lap. I'm with the people that I made the record with. Jenkins gets to do the victory lap, but he doesn't have that. I think having the relationships is probably more important than the trademark in the end of your life. A little piece of paper is not going to do much good when you're 70. (laughs) One of the things Stephen Jenkins' former bandmate, Jason Slater, who was a bassist for Third Eye Blind... Mm-hmm. He was uh, talking about his new band Snake River Conspiracy and doing an interview and he said, "I was hip to Steven's BS a long time ago. I wanted to have a career in music for the rest of my life and I knew if I was associated with that guy, I would not be allowed to do so. He was the inspiration for a lot of songs on this record. The song Somebody Hates You is entirely about him." <laughs>
1: I love he's not the only former band member that talks trash about Steven. And I love that there's a whole knockoff band of former Third Eye Blind members.
0: So this album was released in 1997. Mm -hmm. The producers for it were Steven Jenkins, of course, and Eric Valentine. And Eric Valentine also produced stuff for Good Charlotte, Taking Back Sunday, Nickel Creek, Smash Mouth, The Braids, Maroon 5, All American Rejects, and Weezer. Okay. All of the songs were written by Jenkins and Cadigan. And it was recorded in San Francisco at Toast Studios, Skywalker Sound, which is owned by Lucasfilms, and HOS. And then, as we said, it was released on Electra.
1: Co-producer Eric Valentine talking about making the album, in response to being asked about the specific sound of the album, said, I don't think it really struck me that way at the time. I was using all the techniques I had been using on other records I had done for years leading up to that. The one thing that was unique at the time was that the Third Eye Blind album was a cool opportunity for me to have a full-on, no-compromise, spare-no-expense, do-everything-the-best-possible-theoretical-way type experience. Steven and I agreed that the overall approach should be a totally unapologetic, super hi-fi, as-good-as-we-can-get-everything-to-sound type approach. There were some records at the time that were starting to embrace a more intentional lo-fi approach, and we wanted to do the opposite of that. I put together my dream setup for everything. It really was pretty extravagant. The band had a healthy budget, so the opportunity was there, and we went for it. It was really fun. And by really fun, I assume he means the having all of the money to throw at an album. Yeah. Not specifically working with Stephen Jenkins.
0: The album cover art was shot by Christina Alessino, And she was told to, quote, photograph a young woman with an expressive mouth in my edgy Polaroid style, end quote. And she chose the model Chandra Boatwright. The hand that's placed over her face is Stephen Jenkins' hand. And supposedly there are outtakes of photos in black and white with all sorts of different angles.
1: Since Stephen was given full control, he's the one who would have told her to photograph a young woman with an expressive mouth. Uh-huh. And right there, another red flag is popping up just about him as a person.
0: Yep. Nearly 25 years later, Stephen Jenkins said on Twitter that the sepia tone cover is, quote, how the artwork is supposed to be, end quote. So the
1: first pressing of the album, that image of the woman's face with Stephen's hand, was done in a sepia tone wash. Once the album actually started to be successful and they had to print a lot more to meet consumer demand, it was given a red tone. And then an anniversary edition, they took out the red and they gave it a black wash. So there's been a couple different variations over the years, depending on what version you have and when you bought the record as far as what the color tinting of that photo is
0: cool and Stephen jenkins you know being the guy that he is said so much of that first record for me just came out of always feeling so on the outside being a misfit
1: (sighs) but despite Stephen jenkins personality being that it was 97 and the internet wasn't what it is today the band still
0: was fairly well received they were After the album was released on April 8th in 1997, it went six times platinum in the U.S., platinum in Canada, and gold in New Zealand. They released five singles from this one album. It came in at 20 on the New Zealand albums, 34 on Canada top albums, and 51 on Australia albums. For three years in a row, made the U.S. Billboard 200. It was at number 101 at the end of 1997, number 35 at the end of 1998, and number 138 at the, year, at the end of 1999. In
1: 1997, Semi-Charmed Life won a Billboard Music Award for Modern Rock Track of the Year. And in 98, it was nominated for two American Music Awards for Favorite New Artist and Favorite
0: Artist. What was interesting about this, Mark, I had a hard time finding reviews from the time same i found one
1: yep and that was from entertainment weekly who gave the album a b and my favorite quote of their review said that it balances a cheery ear for harmonies with a finely honed sense of despair this clamorous pop band displays deft songwriting on its hook-laden debut and like you said, there weren't old reviews. There are a lot of more recent ones. Yeah, Pitchfork finally reviewed the album in 2022, and they gave it a 8.3, which is incredibly generous for them. They were equally generous in their review in glossing over Stephen Jenkins' behavior and screwing over his bandmates. They kind of tiptoe around a lot of things, but never come out and say that Jenkins is a terrible person. They did at least cite other reviewers saying, Critics noted in 1997 that Jenkins and crew have an arrogance that outweighs their talent. Which, I think it's unfair to lump the rest of the band in with Stephen Jenkins' ego. One thing that I came away from this review with, in addition to a much stronger distaste of Stephen Jenkins, is an actual appreciation of Kevin Cadigan and his guitar playing. But... I will say, with regards to all of those Reddit stories about people meeting the band and not liking Steven, another theme throughout them seemed to be that as much as they were disappointed in Steven, they all said that Brad was super nice and very gracious. And I have a problem with that.
0: What's that problem? The
1: fact that Brad has been in the band this whole time. Because it's one thing to not care about taking care of yourself, but to allow Stephen Jenkins to go on this long and be the person that Stephen Jenkins is, to allow that to happen, is a monstrous act all on its own.
0: It is pretty bad. I'm going to agree with you on that. And so I have
1: no respect for Brad on any level. Not that I did before, but... I mean, there's other bands. Recently, I can think of the band Anti-Flag broke up because yeah. their lead singer... Was such a horrible person? He had hid it from the band for years, but the second that allegations were made against him, the band as a whole broke ties and put out a very strongly worded, very good press release against the former singer and cutting ties with him and supporting the people who were making the allegations and standing with them against the former frontman. Hmm. The amount of stories here, it's clear that this isn't just like Stephen had an occasional bad show. No. There's a strong pattern of behavior, and it's not appropriate behavior. And anyone who's been in the band for an extended period of time without leaving the band clearly doesn't have a problem with Stephen behaving in that way, and that's not okay. Nope. I've never seen the band live, but I know that you have. This is backwards, Mark. It is a little unusual.
0: I have seen Third Eye Blind not once, but twice. Wow. The first time, Christine and I were engaged and did not have... Money That was June 2003. We saw them at the Tulsa River Amphitheater West. And then the second time we saw them was August eighth two 2007 at the Tulsa Driller Stadium. We got tickets to the first show for free. Christine and I volunteered at a few concerts back in the day so we could see the bands. And neither of us had ever seen Third Eye Blind and thought it'd be fun. And then... We bought tickets to see Counting Crows, and that was the first time Christine ever saw the Counting Crows, oh. and Dart Eye Blind opened for them. When you saw them, either time, did Steven actually play an
1: instrument, or did he just stand there and sing?
0: He wore a guitar at both. Okay. He played some, but I do remember there were some songs where he just had the guitar like on his back and I thought it was weird how long he left it there. So
1: it was just more a fashion accessory.
0: And he did play some. Okay.
1: Because I was honestly surprised to learn that he played anything, much less wrote music for this album. Because in all of the videos, he just kind of stands around while everyone else in the band seems to do all the work. <laughs> So once I was getting into this and was like, this song written by Stephen Jenkins in interviews where it talks about how he came up with melodies, I was like, what?
0: Okay, now I guess we have to start talking about the song, huh? So the album opens up with the song Losing a Whole Year, and this was their fourth single they released in February of 1998.
1: Despite my surprise at learning that Stephen actually played an instrument, this song originated from a guitar riff that Cadigan had written, with Jenkins commenting that the words were how the riff made me feel. Jenkins further discussed the meaning of the song, stating it is about a rich girl from Bernal Heights, and that it is just lamenting the end of a relationship and all of its wasted time.
0: This song is, it's not confirmed by the band, but a lot of people see a connection between this song and The Great Gatsby. Why? The first place I saw it was on a live journal. Okay. And kids, for those of you who don't know, live journal was what people did between Diaryland and MySpace before (laughs) Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. In the book, Nick talks about how Daisy, the object of his affection, says her voice sounds like money, which is referenced in here.
1: There's the line, your voice sounds like money and your face is cute.
0: Yep. And then they talk about a life of sin, which Nick had. And then, of course, you know, it's all about being wealthy. I guess
1: it does make sense since Stephen did study literature in school that he would maybe be influenced by a book or two. Yeah. Producer Eric Valentine, from that same interview that we quoted earlier, specifically about this song, he said, Losing a whole year is a bit of a bass extravaganza. There are sections of the song I am quite sure the bass is triple-tracked. If you want to have a better understanding of what that means, go back and listen to our Hum review. Good call. Whenever Arian plays the bass melody after the choruses, there are two other distorted bass tracks that are layered in to make the bass sound bigger, wider for those moments. So there we go. Losing the whole year. It's all about the bass.
0: We do have our first drug references here,
1: right? We're talking about Prozac? Yeah. Most of the other drug references are a bit more illicit. Yes, they are. They're not as... But you are correct that Prozac is technically a drug. I'd never thought about it before, but it did kind of strike me. This might be the first song that I'm aware of that uses the word cyberspace. Oh, hey, maybe so. This was right as the internet was kind of becoming a legitimate thing. It was back when I had Netscape and we had the AOL discs. Yep. You didn't need to pay for anything. You just had a series of free AOL trials.
0: Yes. Yes song number two narcolepsy i read some stuff i couldn't find anything that was substantiated by the band but some stuff that talked about this song having to do with kurt cobain's death i think that may be more interpretation than actual did you find anything about that i saw nothing about it whatsoever Steven said that they really didn't have a method for songwriting. For example, narcolepsy happened when Kevin was telling me about post-sleep paralysis. That's when your body paralyzes itself when you dream, so you don't get up and do all kinds of things. I thought there was a major metaphor in that. Don't we all just want to wake up? He went on to say that narcolepsy was a song that he was never happy with in an interview with Stereogum. The recording, the rhythm tracks on that always bothered him.
1: Which is odd, considering how much of a control freak he is, that if it bothered him, he didn't redo it until it didn't bother him. Control freak? Yes. Perfectionist? Maybe not. But how would he expect the song to be successful if he didn't give it all that he got? (laughs) We're back to the yearbook. Love it. Throwing his own words back at him. The Michigan Daily of narcolepsy, they said that, meanwhile, it showcases a kind of radio-friendly pop rock that has fallen out of favor in the two decades since its release. Of course, at its release, the sound was highly in favor. It was a very Brown Dock crowd-friendly sound. Quietly strummed guitars and soft vocals eventually lead into a hard-charging yet inoffensive chorus. Third Eye Blind's success likely stemmed in part from its ability to be both palatable to older fans of soft rock and yet retain the slightest of edges for the alternative crowd.
0: Any lyrics jump out at you on this one? This is one that
1: I've never disliked as a song. Yeah. It does have a very strong Third Eye Blind sound. Fits the album just fine.
0: It does. It does. I did have a fondness for the next song earlier in life. I do recall. semi Charmed life. It was for a long time my favorite song about crystal meth. Not so much anymore. This song was actually written according to Steven Jenkins in an interview to Rolling Stone. He said, it's about a time when my friends and I were at a Primus concert and somebody brought speed. No one had done it before. And like three weeks later, all my friends were addicted. Hmm. I think it says an incredible amount of him as a person that he was at a Primus concert. Well, Primus were a Bay Area band. Mm, but they weren't good says who me jenkins wrote this song with herman (laughs) anthony chun who was zen the other half of his rap duo and steven later paid zen ten thousand dollars for sole ownership of the song a decision that i'm willing to bet zen has probably regretted most days of his life since i think it's a worthwhile cost to have steven out of his life (laughs)
1: there's probably no regret But to bring it back to John Vanderslice, who we talked about before, he called it white boy rap and and frat boy rapping. That is from an AV
0: Club interview. That's the AV Club. Okay. Yeah. There were two versions of the song, though. Were there? there was there was the radio version which did not have the lines it starts with and when the plane came in she said she was crashing the velvet it rips in the city we tripped on the urge to feel alive but now i'm struggling to survive those days you were wearing that velvet dress you're the priestess i must confess those little red panties they passed the test so slide up round the belly face down on the mattress one that part was not on the radio version really Mm mm-hmm
1: okay because I feel like a lot of radio stations played it. All they did, those... but there, was a,
0: there was a radio edit that did not include that.
1: Oh, okay. So most of the stations just played the non-radio edit and just bleeped out a couple of words. Yeah. Okay. It got a lot of radio play. And I know that we used to argue about it when the song would come on and I would try to change the station. Yes, we did. <laughs> and you would make me listen to it?
0: Because the sky was gold. It was rose. I was taking sips of it up my nose. And I wish I could get back there someplace back there in the place we used to start our lives.
1: So track four is Jumper, which was the fifth single for the album.
0: The song is sad. It's about a guy who jumped off the Coronado Bridge and killed himself.
1: For those of you who don't know, the Coronado Bridge is a bridge in San Diego that connects San Diego to Coronado Island. You may recognize the bridge from the movie Anchorman, because that's the bridge where Jack Black throws Will Ferrell's dog off of
0: <laughs> Okay.
1: But on a more serious note, I found that kind of odd that it took somebody jumping off a bridge and killing themselves in San Diego for Third Eye Blind to be inspired. Since Third Eye Blind are from San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge is itself the number one destination landmark for suicide in the world.
0: That's sad. It is. But this particular person was gay and had been bullied and that's what led to it. Okay. I take it back.
1: Maybe there are two moments in history where Stephen Jenkins has shown some shred of humanity, this being the other.
0: Quoting in Billboard, Stephen said, Jumper is about a guy who jumped off the Coronado Bridge and killed himself. It's kind of a noir inspired story. And the point was, if we have more understanding for each other, then we might give each other credit. And if you don't want to see me again, I'd understand. Sometimes when you really help people and you make yourself vulnerable and they can't really see you afterwards... Nope, I didn't read that. Yeah, I did. That's just badly stated. I had a friend who was raped and she needed money for medical care and she was ashamed and couldn't talk to her parents about it. Basically, after I helped her, she didn't want to see me. She gave a bit too much of herself and I understood that. And in it, he says, everybody's got to face down the demons. Maybe today you could put the past away. Yep. The next song we have up is Graduate.
1: Is this song about him graduating from high school and rumming it in his teacher's face?
0: close steven actually says people don't know they think it's about getting out of high school or something no getting my punk butt off the street someone poked you down below is basically being a male prostitute and it's a metaphor for how we've all felt like when we're doing something that's way below our station in life i think we've all been like i'm just taking it up up the rear here
1: sorry i'm not laughing at the prostitution thing i'm laughing at steven saying he's doing something below his station yeah so i'm pretty sure that everything is below his station
0: that's what this song's about We've all had that feeling of, you know, this is really beneath me. Not to knock male prostitutes or anything. It's just a metaphor.
1: It's good to know that he has boundaries. He draws the line at male prostitution. At least he respects that.
0: (laughs) So that wraps up Graduate, which makes me wonder, how's it going to be when we're finally done with this episode? Song six. How's it going to be? This was their third single. It came out on its own on October 20th, 1997. So this one starts off slow and soft
1: and acoustic and the music and vocals get louder and bring some of that 90s angst with more electric guitars coming in before slowing down a bit to get a more pensive vibe at the end.
0: Yeah. That's a good description of it, I think. Yeah, it's pensive and reflective. And the reason it's pensive and reflective goes back to how the song came to be. According to an interview with Billboard, Stephen Jenkins said that it started with an auto harp, which, as he says, which is a vintage sounding instrument that you can't really play without it having a sort of nostalgic (laughs) sound to it that inspires this emotional condition in me. And he goes on and talks about that condition being the idea of losing love and realizing You know, you'll be at despair when you meet somebody and you don't actually know them anymore. And he says, I think we feel violated when we find that a relationship actually has time limits, that it's not unconditional. That's the thing that aches in people. That's something everybody can relate to, even when you know you have no business being with this person anymore. And I think the greatest thing about reading that is, um, of all the people we've covered, Stephen Jenkins is in the top list of musicians that I think Googles himself enough that he might actually find our podcast.
1: I can't stop laughing for two reasons. One, because I love your Stephen Jenkins voice. (laughs) It's perfect. And two, because
0: what does Stephen Jenkins know about relationships? I think he knows how to abuse people through them, as we've learned. Oh. Yeah. I used to like this song. I don't know if I can listen to it much anymore, though. I think that's the perfect summary for this album as a whole. Yeah. But I really did like the line, that middle verse where he says, where we used to laugh, there's a shouting match, sharp as a thumbnail scratch. A silence I can't ignore, like the hammock by the doorway we spent time in. It swings empty. I don't see lightning like last fall when it was always about to hit me. Yeah.
1: I think anyone who uh, decided to kick Steven to the curb and move on with their lives did the right thing, even if it left him sarcastically saying, thanks
0: a lot. Song seven, thanks a lot. And since songmeanings.com has not been sending their check to us on time, we're going to songtell's AI bot for the meaning of this song.
1: <laughs> Is that a bot that just looks at lyrics and makes its own interpretation?
0: Yes. Wow well it's like a pre-written thing by a bot
1: right but it's about interpreting the human experience with no experience
0: which is exactly what they're trained to do
1: so it's going to be about as good as normal user reviews dig it
0: (laughs) i can't say for sure but Songtell may in fact be made by miles dyson the vacuum guy no the guy who made skynet i know it was a joke on
1: your joke
0: Overall, Thanks a Lot depicts a toxic relationship where one person has systematically undermined the other person's confidence and exerted control over them. The song serves as a critique of emotional manipulation and the lasting impact it can have on a person's self-esteem and overall well-being. Good job, Bot. Right? With no other context about who Stephen Jenkins is as a person. You (laughs) nailed that. This is the first song where Stephen Jenkins wrote about zombies, too, I might add, on the album that I'm aware of. Hmm.
1: This is the only song on the album where I bothered to make a note over really liking one of the lines in here. Which one? I really like the line, I slit the throat of your confidence. Oof. He repeats it a few times, but it's always, I woke you up and I slit the throat of your confidence and we laughed in the night. And I felt all right. So yeah. It's a strong line that has a very visceral response
0: to it, even though it's not a flattering line for Steven. It is not at all. I don't have a good segue to Burning Man, which is the next song. I didn't really remember this song. It didn't do much for me then. It doesn't do much for me now. There is an interesting part of the song where Jenkins goes falsetto, Mm -hmm. but it's not enough to save the song. And just looking for something to say about it, uh, it's the only song that has a quick, hard stop. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't really have much to say about this song as it is. I think it's always been kind of a middle of the road one for me. Not the best one on the album, not the worst one. I just kind of look at it and think of Stephen Jenkins and I say, good for you song
0: nine good for you Mm -hmm. and is it it's not this song is a big mess Mm. it's slow it has some guitar distortion for some reason and there's no melody to carry it of all the songs on the album this one has the most
1: generic 90s alt-rock sound which i am normally a very big fan of but yeah i agree with you with the slow pace this one feels very uninspired
0: yeah, not a fan. This feels like something a record label would create or, you know, like something one of those groups. If if there had been American Idol in the 90s, whatever group one would have written a song like this. I think, like you said, like
1: it has that guitar distortion. And like I said, it has that generic 90s alt rock sound, which I think is because of that distortion. Yeah. And it feels like it was very much just an attempt to be commercial. Yep, there's no exactly. heart or soul to it. It's just trying to cash in. Isn't that what I said about American Idol? I don't know. When I hear American Idol, I just kind of stop paying attention. Gotcha. But looking at the lyrics now, I see a repeating line that says, my smile will not mislead you, which I find hilarious because everything else that I've learned about Stephen
0: Jenkins, I don't believe that statement at all. (laughs) Song 10, London. My only real note on this one was it feels like it was written by a 14-year-old who is mad at his parents and doesn't want to move to London. But isn't that really
1: just Stephen Jenkins' default setting? Being a bratty adolescent idiot? <laughs> Seriously, though? He makes over two dozen I statements during the course of the song, so it does illustrate how ridiculously self-absorbed he is and how everything is about him, and he doesn't know how to compromise.
0: I think there's a lesson in psychological evaluation in this album that was missed at the time. Yeah. The thing that sounded so 14 years old to me about it was the repeated line of, I don't want to go to London, insert a line. I don't want to go to London, insert a line. I don't want to go to London, insert a line. I don't want to go to London. It just sounded petulant. It's not just the repetition
1: of that line, I don't want to go to London, but between that, it's, I don't want to go to London. I told you I don't care. Yeah. I don't want to go to London. That added extra, I told you I don't care. That to me is where I hear that 14 year old bratty teenage Stephen Jenkins, arms crossed in the back seat, moping. Yeah. All of this talk of him not wanting to go to London, though, is in response to a relationship. I don't know why he's saying he doesn't want to go to London and not just breaking up with the girl. It seems like on some degree he's sending mixed signals by saying, I don't want to go to London, but also I want you. Which is the title of track 11. I want you. I appreciate that we have that story of Third Eye Blind throwing things at the Gallagher brothers, because there's a lot of moments on this album that gave me flashes of what's the story, Morning Glory, and kind of like how we had said on Good For You, how there's a lot of moments where musically it feels deliberately trying to be commercial. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of moments where they looked at other albums that had been successful and endearing and found ways to try to capitalize on those sounds. And this one opens up in a way that to me really feels like they're ripping off the start of Cast No Shadow. Okay, there's just a vibe with that intro that for some reason makes me think of both that song and just that Oasis album as a whole. As far as the rest of the songs concerned, it's mellow and airy and Stephen takes another turn at his slight white boy rap adjacent delivery at times. And on the whole, I don't feel it. Yeah. Now, revisiting this album for these reviews, I didn't remember this track at all. Mm-mm, me neither. I don't listen to the album super frequently, but I have pulled it out from time to time over the years. But coming back to it for this review, I was surprised. Not that there were a couple of tracks I didn't remember, but more so by how many tracks were on this album. There's 14 total, and that feels like a lot. That's too many for this album. And while I'm on the fence over whether or not I would cut London, I would definitely drop this and Good For You from it. Which raises the question, do you have any tracks that you would leave off?
0: I would ditch this one for sure. Mm -hmm. I would cut Good For You, but I'd probably also cut Burning Man and London. Like, those four songs just don't do it for me. Hmm. It really is weird,
1: because in the context of where albums are today versus where they were at this period, I feel like with attention spans and trying to cut through all of the noise of streaming albums have gotten shorter. Yeah. I think to a degree that's also due to the resurgence of vinyl as the main physical medium, because you have to be more conscientious about the limited time that you have on both sides. But in the 90s, it was all CDs. You had up to 80 minutes, and people were making longer records. And this album, in total length, isn't super long. It's still, what, like 50? 55 minutes
0: fifty-seven forty.
1: so when it plays out yeah maybe it doesn't seem all that long so maybe cutting four songs would be a lot
0: or just write better ones that shouldn't <laughs> be a problem for him right
1: it also doesn't do any favors that like the first six songs were all singles so it seems like that first half of the album was just non-stop on the radio they were all bangers but i do enjoy that we both agree that we do not want i want you we don't it does not slap what would be the opposite
0: of slapping that's a good question mark
1: If you're listening, feel free to ask your 12-year-old kid and leave us a comment. I'll leave it up to the younger generations who probably already have weird words for that. Hmm. They can give us the background on slap and non-slap. Nice. Song 12, The Background. This one also has a fairly generic 90s sounding guitar to it. It also has a slower tempo, but unlike Good For You, I think this track actually works. And once the opening noodling finally shifts and settles into the melody, I really enjoy what Cadigan and the guitars are doing here throughout.
0: Do you like that song itself?
1: Of this back half that never got radio play, this one surprised me at how much I did end up enjoying it.
0: I liked it too, and it's another one I didn't remember. But it's not because I didn't remember the last part of the album, because I do remember the last, what, two songs pretty well. There were a couple of these at the
1: end that after a couple of listens, like, okay, yeah, this does sound familiar. It just took a little warming up. Like you said, there are definitely some in the back here that I did remember. Like, I did remember Burning Man, even though I'm not crazy about it. And I did remember the last couple that we're getting into here, starting with track 13, Motorcycle Drive-By.
0: This was my favorite Third Eye Blind song. And I had liked it on the album, but then back in June of 2003 was the first time I saw Third Eye Blind. And I remember the sun was going down and we were up high, so we were looking down on Tulsa at the River West Amphitheater. And when they started Motorcycle Drive-By, the crowd just went wild. And, you know, I know it was the early 2000s, thousands because people pulled out their lighters instead of cell phones. And just as the song played, the lighters in the air, the sun setting over the river and behind downtown, it was just magical it was a really good memory hmm. and this song is a relatable one i think more so than others that steven wrote it's about the end of a relationship that just doesn't work it's not like the other ones he has this anger and control and other toxic elements this one's just about trying to hold on to something that's too far gone and it's not going to work it's a slow song and it builds this crescendo with a powerful line that he really emotes it says i've never been so alone and i've never been so alive so more i statements yeah more i statements and we see that he doesn't care about the person he's with because he's smoking a cigarette and the ashes are flying in her eyes. It's funny because, like you
1: say, it's about the end of a relationship that's too far gone. But I feel like maybe if he was more considerate of a person, it wouldn't have been. Or at least he would have been able to pick up on the fact that it was gone without having to make a trip from San Francisco to New York only to discover it was over. Yep. I kind of have no sympathy for him at this point. Yeah. Regardless of how good of a song it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we are ready to wrap up our album with God of Wine, which is the final song. And a lot of Third Eye Blind fans love this song. Mark, do you remember in Greek or Roman mythology who the God of Wine is? Um, If I remember correctly, I believe it was your mom. Oh, you're very close. Mm. Very close. The correct answer is Dionysius, I believe, for the Greeks and Bacchus for the Romans. But according to Jenkins the song God of Wine takes things from the cellular level where it says as soon cells give way and then also it says every glamorous sunrise throws planets out of line the stars sent out of whack the universe is expanding and it's crumbling the universe is mortal it's disappearing everything that we have everything that we live in is pointless and crumbling and some people are born with an innate understanding of that they have this sort of life rage and this is the melancholy That they find themselves in it's a song about those people and it's basically a story about how we turn back to the irish theme you turn to drink to escape the condition in the end of the song talking about god of wine the bacchanalian even then lets you down wow i thought i had liked this song until i read that i'm drawn back to family guy peter griffin hmm i find it shallow and pedantic it insists upon itself (laughs) yes
1: i don't even know what to say about that quote it's so jenkins i don't necessarily see this song too far from the previous one they're both potentially really good songs and they're both kind of emotional and musically not that far from each other but after that quote just going on and on uh, it just fills me with a sadness i can't erase Which is one of the last lines on the album. And honestly, I think a perfect statement for wrapping up this album. Yeah. I know we've discussed amongst ourselves outside of this podcast the ongoing debate of if music as an art form should be examined and filtered through a lens that separates the songs from the writers of the songs. And I know there are a few cases on both sides. Some musicians I found too deplorable to continue listening to. And there's some that have meant so much to me to be able to make a full break from when it comes to my personal listening however with regards to third eye blind as a band and with this album since when it first came out i thought semi charmed life was obnoxious you did and it took me a while to come around to the rest of this album and while i did learn to enjoy it and have enjoyed it over the years I never got into the band beyond this album, and I didn't care what they did with their follow-up albums. I even have told the story on our One Hit Wonder Roundup about when I bought this album and intentionally did not buy Blue, which was their second release. And so that being the case, I have no problem with letting Stephen Jenkins' extensive history of douchebaggery overshadow all of the band's accomplishments, including this album. And with finding more and more and more on that subject as we've gone through... I found myself caring less and less about the band and it has become harder to continue to listen to this album for this review process because I really just don't want to give any more time or thought or effort to Stephen Jenkins because he doesn't deserve any from anyone. And so maybe that's then a little hypocritical for record this review with that being my final thought on it. But I still think that the more people talk about how terrible he is, maybe the better we can be as human beings.
0: You know, this album wasn't a huge one for me. It wasn't? I liked some of the songs, they were fun, but I didn't listen to this album on repeat like I did other albums. Okay, maybe I just have all the memories
1: of you being very into Sumi Charmed Life when it was on the radio.
0: So maybe I'm interpreting
1: that as a further...
0: No, there was an element of liking the song, and there was an element of liking how much you hated the song, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Our friendship is built on a solid foundation of you being a jerk.
0: (laughs) We were, what, 15, 16 when this song came out? We were supposed to be jerks. Right. We grew out of some of it. You know, I did enjoy their radio songs. Mm Mm-hmm. The album's fairly solid. You know, you can listen to most of it without a problem. It is. I didn't start out as a big Third Eye Blind fan when we started this review, but I have such a hard time now knowing just how awful Stephen Jenkins is, what he did to the other bandmates at the time this album was recorded and released. I didn't pay much attention to it over the years, but I didn't care enough about Third Eye Blind until I saw Zach Lynn going off on him.
1: Yeah. It was hard to know over the years what was going on because, I mean, if the band members themselves didn't know how bad he was treating them. That's true. Which I'm guessing he wasn't ever great to them. Right. But I agree that I appreciate Zach finally bringing this to light. Going through this review, I think I mentioned earlier that I have a newfound appreciation for Cadigan and his guitar playing. Yeah. And so I also have a newfound sympathy for Cadigan and the time that he had to put up with Stephen Jenkins. For sure. And so for that, I kind of have mixed feelings here because as much as I don't want Stephen Jenkins to get any attention or any thought or any recognition for the music... If he wasn't such a complete dick, I would say 100% that this album holds up. But I don't think that that's enough to justify supporting Stephen
0: Jenkins on any level. Now go go see an XEB show. Support those guys. Speaking of support, it's usually at this time of the show where we would give our top three and recommend people go listen to those songs from these albums. Yep. But leading up to this, Mark and I decided we do not want to encourage people to go listen to Third Eye Blind. Mm -hmm. So we are going to forego that for the first time. Yep.
1: Sorry for those of you who had money writing on which of these we had in our top three. But luckily for us, luckily for you, luckily for the world at large, not everybody is as bad as Stephen Jenkins. And next episode, I am very excited to moving on to somebody who I think the research will support is a very good person. Who is this? That is the ever adorable Lisa Loeb as we cover the album Tales by Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories. Nice.
0: I'm excited to record that one.
1: Yeah, I think that'll be a nice, positive endeavor to cleanse the palate from Stephen Jenkins. who I decided I am going to only refer to moving forward as a dish, but not using dish as a term of endearment that it usually is, but as a shortening of a dick and a douche. You invented a new term for him. It was necessary, huh? I think so. Nice. Thank you, everyone, for listening and indulging us as we plowed through Stephen Jenkins being a dish through the ages.
0: You can check us out on Instagram at instagram.com slash once every two weeks. Bye. Once every two weeks is a production of Borough Barracho Records.